Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight, and our topic is the mystery of salvation. I would dare say that there's nothing, uh, no concept, no doctrine within Christianity about which there's more confusion than salvation. There are so many different theories about how it works, so many different theories about you know, how it relates to life after death and what happens to us after we die and are angels different than us, are spirits different than angels and do we sit in the ground until the last judgment or, you know, there's all these different um, thoughts about it on all these different theories. And there is a great mystery at the heart of salvation about are there things that we have to do are there things that only God can do? If, if we could do it, why do we need God? But if God does it, why does he need us? Or, uh, and why even have religion or scripture or anything like that? There's, uh, there's some interesting things to ponder here. So I'd like to invite you to join me on this uh, journey. And let's open with a prayer. Shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world. We seek for you in the pages of your word. Please reveal your compassion and your truth to us. Amen. Amen. Very good to see you, everyone. Sending out love to those of you getting this uh, by the interweb, as they say, and uh, <laughs> people getting the audio file and on the phone from up in Canada and all sorts of Wonderful places. Pleasure to be with you again. And uh, talking about the mystery of salvation and who does what exactly. Where I thought I'd start here, um, you may have heard me mention this before. I was very surprised a number of years ago that um, if you look in the Schaff Herzog Encyclopedia, which is, memory serves as 13 volumes encyclopedia about all biblical knowledge, it's a thousand pages in each volume. Uh, there are, I think, five and a half pages devoted to the subject of life after death. And they really just have to express confusion and, you know, we aren't sure what this is and we don't know who angels are. You know, it's kind of amazing in, in 13,000 pages. You don't have more than that to say about life after death because um, from Swedenborg's perspective, there's a lot in scripture about life after death. And one of the things is uh, just talking about a map of the spiritual world. There are just little tiny clues, but I want to take you into these little clues. You ready to go on a little journey here? Uh, let's look at, so in your New Testament, if you go to the Gospels and turn to the right, go through Acts and Romans into the Corinthians. I want 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The first two verses there, Paul is talking about the visions that he's had. And what does he say here? It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now, the thing that's of interest to me tonight is that mention of the third heaven. Uh, it's widely believed that Paul is talking about himself because by the time you get a few more verses later, you realize 
he's probably talking about himself, but he's putting it sort of objectively in the third person. You know, I knew someone 14 years ago. Uh, Paul, it's amazing that Paul doesn't even know whether he was in the body or not in the body. Uh, But, in other words, it must have had exactly the same kind of experience of a physical form. But this person was caught up to the third heaven. Now, if I remember my elementary school math, in order for there to be a third heaven, there's probably a second heaven and a first heaven. Does that stand to reason? I think there's probably three of them. If They probably didn't skip two, like hotels with the 13th floor and all, you know. Um, I think there's probably, it implies that there are three heavens, and he was caught up to this third heaven. It's less convincing, but have a look at the revelation at the end of your book there, chapter 21. Um, All through the book of Revelation, John on the Isle of Patmos is making references to being in the spirit. I was in the spirit. I was having a vision. I was caught up to, you know, heaven and all this sort of thing. And he's describing angels and so on. And then in 21 verse 10, what happens? And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Yes, so my point here is just that it's very subtle, but this is suggesting that heaven has multiple levels because he's already been in heaven and seeing angels, but now he goes up to a great and high mountain. So there's somewhere even higher than where he was. You know, there are, there are levels of heaven. Uh, a little more depressingly, there's also evidence that there are levels of hell, and there's a certain linguistic suggestion that there might be three of those as well. Uh, let's try Psalm 86. Now, sometimes this is right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, things get tangled up in translation between different sources and so on, but uh, look at Psalm 86, verse 13. What do we read there? For great is your mercy toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depth of shale from the depths of shale now that's interesting in the old king james it says from the lowest hell is what it says you've delivered my soul from the lowest hell again that's a tiny little linguistic point but the lowest should be of three if there were two it would be the lower or something you know but the lowest hell there should be three hells for that Uh, the new king james says shale generally there's two words for hell uh, Gehenna and Sheol. Uh, there's lots of other expressions for it. Uh, but they're generally, in the Old King James, just translated hell. Have a look back at Deuteronomy. So that's the fifth book. You know, Moses all the way to your left. Deuteronomy chapter 32. See how this turns out in these different translations. Verse 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. Ah, thank you. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. There we have the lowest hell. That's how it reads in the old King James as well. Uh, fire is killed in my, kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. So there must be layers of, you know, it's subtle, but there must be layers of hell just as there are la- enough layers of heaven to say that there's a third heaven, which seems to be the highest one. In other words, it counts from us. First, 
second, third going up. I don't know how they count them going down, but the lowest is definitely at the bottom, we would assume. And uh, look in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Mark, if you will. We're jumping all over the place, having tremendous fun. Look at Mark chapter 12, and um, let's pick up at verse 38. This is Jesus speaking about the scribes. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. In the old King James, great, the greater damnation. These shall receive, no, just greater damnation. These shall receive greater damnation. That implies that there are degrees of damnation. Does it not? Like you could have less damnation or you could have more, you know. Uh, so not only is there damnation, but what they're doing is really bad, you know. They're devouring widows' houses and there's a pretense, there's all this hypocrisy and so on. And so he's saying they will receive the greater dam, uh, damnation because of their hypocrisy. Uh, so it's just interesting. These are tiny little clues, but haven't they created a picture that there are multiple levels of heaven? So there are multiple levels of salvation. There are multiple levels of hell, and there's greater and lesser damnation. Mm. Okay. So... You know, let, let's just try writing something on the board. Let's say uh, you are here in the middle, um, here in this physical world. There would be, uh, I'll just draw, you know, quickly, but you'd have three levels of heaven up above here, and this highest one would be called the third heaven. And then you'd have um, three levels of hell down here, and the lowest one is called the lowest hell. Um, so when we're talking about salvation and damnation, it's not just a binary situation. It seems like there, there are multiple levels up here and multiple levels down here that, that Scripture talks about. Now, the next point that I want to make about this uh, let's go back just to the left to Matthew chapter 5 and think about who God is for a second. Matthew 5, verse, uh, let's pick up at uh, verse 43. How about that? In the Sermon on the Mount. 43. Mm. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, mm. do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For me, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Oh, now wait a minute. Okay. So we're supposed to love our enemy. You know, you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But we're taught by the Lord to love 
our enemies, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us, pray for those who despitefully use us and persecute us. And that's on the model of our Father in heaven. And what does he do? He makes his sun rise on the evil, on the evil and on the good. His sun. And if you're aware, good friends, of this concept of correspondences, his son would have to do with the divine love, uh, that he sends out his divine love to the evil and to the good, just equally. We talked about this a little bit in a couple of weeks ago in Bible study. And what's the other half of it? And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Yes, yeah, such a beautiful image. It's absolutely true. The rain doesn't go, oh, I'll go over here. I won't go on your house. No, okay, just on your house. Uh, the rain rains on everybody, and that is an image in correspondences of the divine truth. The divine love is showered down on the good and the evil. The divine truth is showered on the just and on the unjust. Well, then... Why do some people go to a high hell and some go to a middle hell and some go to a low hell and some go to a low heaven and some go to a middle heaven, some go to a high heaven? If the Lord is putting out the same energy, this is what I'm trying to get at. What is this mystery of salvation? Like, how does it, if, if He's putting out exactly the same thing, then it seems like the onus must be on us in some sense. We must have some control over this thing or some sort of input or something because otherwise, I mean, there's a couple of po horrible possibilities. Uh, one possibility is that the Lord is not good. He plays favorites. I like you. I don't like you. I know I created you both, but I like you and I don't like you. Uh, well, that's not a very nice God, and, and I wouldn't feel overwhelming love for that, that creator if that's the way that he was. I kind of like the idea that there's this, like the sun. Sun shines on everybody. The, the, you know, it's the same love for everybody. I love Swedenborg's statement that it's impossible for God even to frown at us. You know, uh, it, it's, it's all smiles. He, he's sending out absolute love. He's sending out his truth to everybody that just and the unjust. It suddenly pops to mind that there's an image of this in the parable of the sower where he's just scattering seeds. Some of them fall on the hard road. Some of them fall in the weedy area. You know, it, it, he doesn't change the output. You know, he's not sort of, oh, well, this is good ground, so I'll throw some seed over here and forget about that. That's a pathway. No, the Lord's kind of crazy that way. He, he just showers it on everybody, you know. Just let's see what happens. Who knows? Maybe something will grow up. So he's, he's showering his truth on, on all these different kind of people. So, mm, well, doesn't that kind of uncomfortably mean that there's something on our end that determines where we go? And yet it could not be the case, could it, friends, that we save ourselves? Um, we couldn't save ourselves. Like, if we could save ourselves, uh, wouldn't we do it? Like, um, wouldn't we be less of a neurotic mess? Um, if we had that power, you know, like it's just like flip a switch or make a choice or something, wouldn't we be a little better than, than we are? You know, how do we explain the way the world is 
if we had that power for ourselves. And if you really find out what salvation means and the long journey represented by the wandering of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they go on this long, long journey here, there, and all around trying to find the, the Holy Land, and they, they get in there, and then they have to conquer all these enemies when they get in there. Uh, to save ourselves, we would need to know, would we not, some of the following things, wouldn't we need to know all about heaven? We'd need to know all about hell. We'd need to know the different loves and mindsets that operate in all these different areas. We'd need to know what evil lies in our own heart that may be deceiving us in our own minds. We'd need to know what angels are with us and what they're trying to use in order to bring us along. We would need to know where we are now, where would be a good place to go, how much, how quickly we can go, or what's, whoops, too much, or we might have overdone it, and back up a little bit, and, and, and you know, Wow, we can't, we cannot lead ourselves to, to heaven. Uh, we don't even know who we are. We don't even know what's going on in our own heart. We have no idea. We're still trying to figure out what happened in our childhood, let alone figure <laughs> out what's going on now. Uh, how would we ever do that? Uh, it, it's way above our pay grade. Um, But if the Lord is the same for everybody and sending down his son and his reign on everybody, there must be something about us that determines where we go. But what is that? Another passage I want to share with you, a couple of passages. If you turn to the right and go into Acts right after the Gospel of John, Acts chapter 10. There are a lot of these passages. They're fun. We dealt with them in a Bible study years ago. Um, Look at 10, verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Aha. Uh -huh. You see, there's a sense that there's just a worldwide system. This is a little like the idea of the rain and the sun on everybody. There, it's not, oh, you're a special group. So I've got a special deal for you. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, in the wonderful language of the old King James, God is no respecter of persons. Like it's not like, oh, well, you're a special person. So I'll let you in on a secret about how this works. Well, you know, it doesn't work that way. It's just a blanket thing. Anybody who's responding, the Lord works with them because it's, it's just a blanket of love and truth. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the Lord isn't omniscient and doesn't know each one of us very intimately and deal with us in different ways, but it's all done by this system of divine love and divine truth that we're all just bathed in, you know? It says in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, this is just the context in which we function. Uh, so choices that we make have a good effect. You know, anybody who turns toward him and so on is accepted by the Lord. He's no respecter of persons. Let's look at one more like this. Um, it's almost back to the book of Revelation is the epistles of Peter. It's just before the epistles of John. First Peter chapter 1. Hmm. Let's look at... Uh, 
start at verse 15. What the heck? Is, well, uh, let's start at verse 14. Well, let's start at verse 13. <laughs> Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Yes, your mind has loins. <laughs> it's not widely known. Yep. Go on. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. Oh, so we can conform ourselves to lusts. Hmm. Sounds like we're kind of shaping ourselves or something. We're not supposed to do that. What are we supposed to do? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, you notice that's an imperative verb in there, isn't it? You know, you be holy. Uh, all, the, all the time that I was growing up, maybe some of you know my father, he, he, um, he always said, be good. He was always saying, that was his main parental instruction, <laughs> be good. So it says, be holy in everything, you know, in all your conduct. Be holy. It's a commandment. Okay, go on. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Mm. Now you'd think, well, if the Lord is holy, wouldn't we just sort of automatically be holy? Or said, why would we have to be holy? Why would he have to use an imperative verb on us? You know, be holy, for I am holy. Uh, it must be that we respond in some way. And what's in verse 17 there? And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's works. Oh. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. I see. Interesting. Okay. I, I'm obedient to that uh, scripture. The, um, uh, if you call on the Father, so he does not, he, he doesn't have partiality. He's no respecter of persons. He judges everyone according to the way they live, their work, the things that they do. So he's not sort of like, well, these are my favorite people, or this is my favorite family, or this is my favorite race, or something. He doesn't do that. It's just, it, it's, it's just everybody's on the same playing field, but he does look according to our response. And so he's looking for whether we are exhibiting that holiness or not. And yet, could we make ourselves holy? Keep asking yourself that until you get a no. Uh, we are not able to, <laughs> to produce. We don't even know what holiness is. We don't know how to do that to ourselves. Uh, so Scripture is full of these interesting commands that we really can't fulfill without the Lord, and yet the Lord can't do them without us. So you see what I'm saying about the mystery? Um, well, here's another little bit. Okay, so... Uh, one of the rumors going around about salvation is that when we die, we just wait in a kind of limbo forever until the last judgment, and then we finally get resurrected in our physical bodies and run around in this world again for some period of time, and then nobody really knows what happens after that. Uh, not, a, not a tremendously respectable doctrine, but widely taught. Um, uh, but this is not the teaching of Scripture. Have a look in Genesis. Let's go back all the way to the left in your Bible. And what do we read about all these people? This... I don't know. Lots of things interest me, but this, this did fascinate me. Look at the death of Abraham in uh, chapter 25, verse 8 in Genesis. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, 
an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people, not to a bunch of vaporous wraiths, you know, <laughs> awaiting the, the final judgment, but his people. He was gathered to his people. How about in verse 17, what happened to Ishmael? These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Uh, now, interesting that it doesn't say, it's just subtle, but interesting that it doesn't say, I mean, Abraham was his father, but it doesn't say he was gathered to Abraham, who had just died a few verses before, almost as if Abraham had his own. So you might think people just means your relatives, loved ones, or something like that, but it, it, it's not super clear, but there's a sort of a suggestion there that Ishmael has a different set of people than Abraham has. You know, Abraham's gathered to his people, Ishmael's gathered to his people. Okay, let's have a look at chapter 35, uh, also in Genesis verse 29, the death of Isaac. You can imagine what it says. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Oh, okay, thank you. And... Uh, <laughs> Have a look at chapter 49 about Jacob. Very interesting. We get this for all the patriarchs. 49 verse 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. So I guess he had learned from just his, his, his relatives passing on that this was going to happen to him. So before he even dies, he says, I am going to be gathered to my people. And here's where to bury me. So it's not talking about his body. His body's going to be in the ground, but he will be with his people. And look in uh, verse 33, what he said is true, and there's an interesting little detail in there. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed. Isn't that interesting? And breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Yep, and it happened just like he predicted that it would. Okay, go through Exodus and Leviticus to Numbers... Chapter 20, mm-hmm, okay, Numbers 20, now you can, you know, it's getting a little repetitive, but look at what uh, is said about Aaron here, now, so there were brothers, there was Aaron and Moses, and also their sister Miriam, and you remember Moses said he couldn't speak very well, so Aaron would be the spokesperson for him kind of thing, and here's what we learn here. In verse... 24, let's go for 24, shall we? Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Oh, wow, okay. All right, and sure enough, he dies, and by the end of that, yes, he, he dies by the end of that chapter. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then look at 27, verse 13 in Numbers. 27.13, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was gathered. Okay, now here's the question. Aaron and Moses were brothers. Aaron dies first. Is Moses going to be gathered to Aaron? Wouldn't Aaron be one of his people? Well, let's see. Have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. Just discovered this today. I was so excited. But then I'm easily, you know, diverted. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 
50, what does the Lord say to Moses here? And die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Oh, they have two different sets of people. Aaron is not one of Moses' people. Moses is going to be gathered to his people, but Aaron is going to be gathered to a different set of his people. I may be putting too fine a point on it, but I'm very interested that it says that, that people, you know, Ishmael's people are not Abraham's people. Everybody has their own people. And Swedenborg explains about this is that your people are people who especially love the same things, are passionate about the same things that you're passionate about. Those are who your people are. Ishmael's people may be quite different from Abraham's people. Just, just because you're related by blood doesn't mean your people are the same. Maybe, maybe they are. Maybe they're not. But I was fascinated that Aaron's people are not... Aaron died on one mountain and went to his people, and Moses died on a different mountain and went to his people. It's just, just different. Let's read a depressing passage, shall we? Let's go to Isaiah in the middle of your Bible, and I want to go to chapter 14. Now, this chapter is almost, almost not quite, but almost single-handedly responsible for the idea that hell was started because there was an angel who fell from mm. grace and went down and everything is based on Isaiah chapter 14. Mm. But Isaiah 14 doesn't say that. To me, it's talking about a human being in this world. Uh, look at the beginning there. What's in the first? Let's see. What does it say? Well, okay, let's look at verse 4, 14 verse okay. 4. That you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and uh, the say... The king of Babylon is not... An angel is not a devil. He's somebody in this world. King of Babylon. It's not, how did they get an angel out of this? He's the king of Babylon. He's not an angel, not a devil. He's a person still living in this world. And so take up this proverb and say all this stuff. Okay, let's read a little bit of this because it's just wonderfully awful. How the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted and no one hinders. This is not an angel. This is a bad person. It is a bad human being living in this world. Okay, go on. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Hmm. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Now listen to this next verse. It may not come across in the New King James. Let's see how it goes. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. Yes, you see, when the king of Babylon dies, he's going to go down to hell because he's done nothing in this world except oppress people and harass them and also cut down some nice trees. Uh, that has an inner meaning as well. But, but what a statement. Hell beneath you is excited about your coming. Welcome, friend. You know, hell is excited that he's coming. Go on. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has, mm. it has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Mm. Sounds like a lot of the kings of the nations didn't fare well, and they're all down there in hell. Okay. They all shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Yes. <laughs> Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, 
and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. Mm. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Well, see, heaven is kind of in quote marks. He was never in heaven. He was abusing everybody. You know, heaven here just means that you were lifted up in your own mind and you thought you were so great you were ruling the whole world. Uh, but that, how are you? So people, it's amazing how the human mind can just latch onto half a verse and turn a whole huge doctrine into it uh, that just isn't true. It's, all you have to do is read a little bit of context and you see that's not how it works. And look at, look at this. Let's read it a little more. It's just great. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? Mm, so what was he like? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's very convincing, dear reader. That was wonderful. <laughs> that was good. The, uh, the, you know, this, uh, he's vaunting himself above God. You know, th this is the nature of this king of Babylon. And isn't it amazing that it's quite, you know, it's full of metaphors and correspondences and so on. But it says that this person is going to go down to hell and hell's already excited about him showing up. And they're all sort of kind of glorying in the fact, oh, now you're as weak as we are, and you used to be so great, and now you're cut down, and just the sort of abuse you'd expect from your friends in hell. And, um, and so the, the, this is just one of many teachings. I've done Bible studies before on the fact that our survival of death is immediate, personal, and permanent, Scripture teaches. You know, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, and so on. Uh, this, too, teaches that idea that when you die, then you, you know, so some people die and go down to hell. Some people die and go to heaven. Let's look at a story like that in the New Testament in Luke chapter 16. You didn't want verse 15. Okay. Well, that's great. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> Where are we going? Yeah, no, no, do it. Do okay, it. so that's after one. all that vaulting himself, yes. it says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Yes, okay. there you go. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah, that was wonderful. <laughs> we really needed to read that. That was excellent. The, um, let's go to Luke chapter 16. And that's right. There's more teaching in the Bible about this stuff than you realize, but it helps so much to have a certain lens to look through because there's so many different theories about what's going on and everything can be interpreted upside down and sideways. Um, so uh, let's start at verse 19 there. This is the rich man and Lazarus. 1619. 1619. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Mm. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at the gate, at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Interesting that one was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom and the other one just died and was buried. And where is he? And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I want to file an amended report. 
in addition to Gehenna and Sheol, you also have Hades, where mm. they're all hell. Okay, so in hell he lifts up his eyes. So he goes down, again, where's the idea that you sit unconscious for thousands of years and then come back into the physical flesh? These people are dying and going immediately to heaven or hell. Go on. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Mm. Disturbing. Go on. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Classic sort of chiastic switcheroo in script, you know, that, <laughs> that he used to be doing well, now he's poor, you know, you used to be doing poor, now you're doing well. Yes, go on. And besides all this, between us and you, there was a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Mm. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And you see, even this rich man down in hell knows that repentance is what would have gotten him out of going to hell. He wants to send a message about repentance to his brothers who are still alive in this world. But Father Abraham said to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Now you could say, well, this is just a parable and so on. Um, Actually, it doesn't use the word parable there, does it? It's just Jesus speaking and he tells this story and so on. Um, and Swedenborg does refer to this as giving a fair idea about life after death. He would explain that the flame is not a literal fire. It's that what you have in your heart, you know, the evil desires and so on in your heart. Uh, but the, the torment is, is accurate because if you love things, if what you love are things that hurt other people, you can't do that, so you're going to be tormented. And that's the nature of some people's experience of the afterlife and others. Lazarus is having a, a, a better time uh, because he wasn't being evil to anybody or, or whatever. He actually desired, he wanted the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He desired the truth, he desired love, and so he fared better after death. So, um, Hmm. So this suggests that the way that we live our lives, the things that we care about, like mention of repentance, if we go through repentance, we can end up in a better situation here. Now it's obvious that uh, we don't save ourselves, as I was talking about before. Um, I want to look at some passages that have to do with... Um, Look, okay, let's go to the Psalms in the middle of your book. I just want to read a few passages here. Those of you who are familiar with Swedenborg's works may have seen his phrase about the as of self or the as if of self, which whether that's tremendously well translated or not, uh, 
means that it's as if you have your own autonomy in your own life, but you don't actually, but you have to act as if you do kind of thing. Uh, I wanted to read some passages that seem to go with that idea. Look in Psalm 100, verse 3. We read this just a few weeks ago. I love this one. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Yes, and if you can see in a deep level into what that's saying, the sheep are people who do good things to other people. The Lord is the one who makes us that way, not we ourselves. This is getting into the mystery of salvation. How, how do you, you need the Lord to be saved? You can't do it without Him. And yet, if He sends His rain on the just and on the unjust and, and His Son on the good and on the evil... Why doesn't everybody go to heaven? Why do you have a rich man who ends up in hell and Abraham and Lazarus end up in heaven? What is, what is the difference? Well, it's a function of whether they responded, right? Look at Matthew. Let's go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10. Again, don't know how all these will come across in the various different translations that we use in this Bible study. Uh, look at verse 19 and 20 in Matthew 10. Jesus' advice to his followers. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Yes, doesn't that get to the heart of the mystery that, that how could it be that we would not be speaking? He says, don't worry about what you're going to say. That's not your job. We'll figure out what you'll say. We'll send you an email shortly before the event, and you'll just say it, you know. I don't remember reading that in there, but that's a paraphrase. Um, have a look at Luke chapter 21, back into Luke. The mystery of salvation. Luke 21. Uh, I don't know. This is just a tiny little thing. Look at verse 30. Is about the fig tree. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Yes, in the old King James, that know for yourselves is know of your own selves. In mm. other words, you, you don't need anybody to tell you, you know of yourself that summer is coming. Just a tiny little reference, but look at John. There's a bunch in John chapter 7. Hmm. These are really astounding to me. Uh, look at verses 16 and 17. What, what does Jesus say here? My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Yes, in the Old King James, of myself. Yes. Mm. And on my own authority is a good translation. Verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. And I'm noticing the wording in verse 17. Could you read that again at the beginning there? If anyone wills to do his will. Yes, many small words in there, aren't there? If any man wills to do his will. He shall. So the Lord has a will. But then we need to will to do the Lord's will, right? So you need two wills. 
if you only had the Lord's will, well, the Lord's will is for everybody to be saved. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We're taught that. Uh, but we need to will to do His will. And isn't it interesting to say that that's the way you would know whether Jesus was speaking of God or of Himself is you would have to be, will to do His will and then you'd find out how Jesus was doing it because you'd be walking a similar, not the same path, but something similar. Isn't that implied in there? That's a fascinating passage to me. And look at verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Yes, uh, I have not come of myself. So he doesn't say what is of his own will, and he hasn't come because of his own will. Uh, it, not of myself. So even in Jesus' case, it's not of himself. Look at chapter 8, verse 28. 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. Yes, I do nothing of myself. Jesus does nothing of himself. So... Jesus is the, his glorification, the ultimate example. He was absolutely united to God, so they're indistinguishable. Uh, and how he did it was he did nothing of himself. He did the Father's will. You know, it repeats that again and again. I do nothing of myself as my Father taught me. I say these things. I always do the things that please him. Uh, oh, look at verse 42. 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Yes, of myself. And look at verse 44. You are of your father the devil. And There's the de another nice of, like you <laughs> of. could be of God or you could be of the devil, mm -hmm. right? And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And listen to this. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. Yes, he speaketh of his own. It's a, you know, in the wonderful language of the old King James. For he is a liar and the father of it. When the, when the devil speaks from himself, you know, that he's, he's not doing it right. So we have kind of a couple of different settings. We can operate from ourselves or we can operate from a higher source. Uh, that seems very important. Look at uh, just quickly at 12 verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority. That's right. Thank you. And let's look at 15 <laughs> verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Yes, you see, you can't do it of yourself. So we cannot be saved of ourselves. We have to get that power from the Lord. So we can't be saved without the Lord's power, but he can't save us 
without our cooperation. Otherwise, no deal. You, you wouldn't have a hell. There wouldn't be anything, you know. Uh, and we wouldn't need to know about God. We wouldn't need religion. We wouldn't need to be pleaded with. No commandments. No if you do this or whatever, you know. Uh, none of that would be relevant because God would just do it and it would be done. Uh, the core of all this is... Um, there are lots more great ones. Oh, let's go. Let's go into that. Go into the epistles. So Romans, First Corinthians. Let's go to. There's a bunch of great ones in the Corinthians. Let's just go to Second Corinthians, three, verse five. Jumping into the middle of a sentence. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God. Yes. In the language of the old King James, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. As of self. I believe this is where it comes from. But our sufficiency is of God. So we're not... Uh, these things don't come from ourselves. They come from God. So this is the mystery of salvation. Um... Another passage that comes to mind back in Matthew chapter 13 is the tares and the wheat. We don't have to read this whole thing, but you probably remember this parable that uh, man sowed wheat and then an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And so they wanted to pull them up early, but you couldn't tell the difference because they look alike until they fruit. So they had to leave them to the point of fruit and then... Uh, in verse 30, let them both grow together till the harvest. And then in the time of harvest, I'll say to the reapers, gather together first the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, and then gather the wheat into my barn. And he explains later on, they come and ask him about this. Let's read down at verse 37. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Mm. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Mm. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. Yes, that's right. So, uh, go on. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. doesn't say anything about their faith playing any role in this one way or the other. It's just people who are doing bad things, right? Mm -hmm. Go on. Then the righteous will shine forth as, as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mm. He sends his son on the righteous and the unrighteous, but the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Yes, yes, and, and the way that Swedenborg interprets this is that this is actually a process that goes on. There's a massive process that goes on in what he calls the last judgment, which he said already took place, but there's also an individual judgment that we all go through where these things are kind of weeded out. They all look alike while they're growing up in this world, but some are of God and some are uh, evil, but they weren't created that way. It's a function of our choice while we're in this world. Um, so the essence of it to me is that it's all about 
this covenant. The whole purpose. See, if it's true that we can't be saved without the Lord's power, if we could be saved without the Lord's power, no need for religion, no need for anything, no need for exhortation or commandments or anything like that. I mean, uh, obviously we can't. It's just the metaphor kept occurring to me, that funny expression about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, physics, you, you can't do it. You can't lift yourself up into the air. Uh, no more could we sort of jack ourselves into heaven somehow um, just by sheer force of our own evil will. You know, that's not going to that's not going to do it. Um, uh, we cannot save ourselves. And yet it seems pretty clear that the Lord wants to save everybody. I don't know if I can find it. I didn't look up that passage ahead of time. I'll just take a quick look and see if I can find it. It's in first or second Timothy. I may not be. Oh, two verse four. All right. First Timothy. So you go out into the epistles and you go through Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, get to first Timothy chapter two. Let's read verses three and four. For this oh, is let's put, start at verse one. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For all, yes, it's not limited to a certain group. For kings and all who are in authority. We read about some kings who didn't fare so well a little we, earlier, did we not? They didn't go, didn't go so well. So give it a special prayer for the kings, okay? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. It matters how you live. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Who? Who desires all men to be saved. There it is. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yeah. The Lord, there's rumors going around about predestination. The Lord picks some people, and some people think it's infralapsarian, and some people think it's superlapsarian. Depends on when he made his big choice about who goes to hell, who goes to heaven, and everything. That kind of demolishes the whole thing in my mind. It says he wants everybody to be safe, period. But it kind of leaves a somewhat, in some ways it's empowering, isn't it? The idea that, oh, wait a minute, we, we kind of, we have the controls. We, we have something. Now, it's a little difficult to steer this crazy thing that we're wearing as human <laughs> being uh, because we don't know where we are. We're not sure where we've been, and we certainly don't know where we're going. So, uh, and we get easily fooled and turned around and everything. And yet somehow there's something in us that is it's up to us. You know, it's a, it's a more horrible thought to me. They both have horrible aspects, but, but it's a more horrible thought to me to think God just lined everybody up and said, you're pathetic, you know, forget it. Uh, that's not how it works. The, the love is absolutely the same on everybody, shining down on everybody, same truth on everybody. But then it gives us this sort of um, burden, almost a little anxiety of salvation, doesn't it? You know, because there's this... Ooh, if the Lord is the same, you know, I mean, Swedenborg says sometimes it's just like it's our fault if we don't up, end up in heaven because the Lord is really trying in every conceivable way to get that to happen. Um, 
So it does leave a certain onus on us, it seems. Um, but it makes so much sense out of all the, the pleading. I just want to read two examples of pleading. Let's go back to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. But once you see them in Scripture, it just it, it makes so much sense. Oh, there, there's other things I have to say about this. Let's read a couple of pleading. Uh, chapter 30 in Deuteronomy... Uh, verse 19. The whole thing is very relevant, just wonderful. But if you hearken to the Lord and keep His commandments, and if you turn to the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, we have to do that in verse 10. You know, then... And let's read some of that. It's so, so fabulous. Let's start at verse 10 there. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Yes, sorry, that's the end of a previous yeah. sentence, but go on. For, okay. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. But wait, I titled my Bible study, The Mystery of Salvation. Mm -hmm. You can't undermine me like that. Go on. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? That's right. Good question. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Mm. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Yes. You couldn't get closer than in your own mouth and in your own heart, <laughs> right? You don't have to go very far doesn't take a trip out at night or anything like that. It, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, that you may do it. But you see, it's obvious that we've got to do it. Go on. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. Mm. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Meaning heaven. Go on. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. What an amazing statement. So the Lord says, look, I'm, I'm giving you the choices. I'm showing you what this is. Here's what good is. Here's what evil is. It's not mysterious. It's not far away. It's right here. And then he commands us to choose life. And yet he can't force us to do it, if he could, he wouldn't have to say it. The way it's set up is just, he just says, choose life. And one other like this in the middle of your Bible, find Isaiah in there and then turn to the right, go to Jeremiah and then Ezekiel chapter 18. I'll just read verses 31 and 32. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? 
For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. So the thing that I think has escaped a lot of people over time, and uh, the only reason I can say anything about this, I had the blessing of just reading a lot of Swedenborg and studying this, um, that God is his own order. There's an order to the whole thing. That God is divine love and divine wisdom, and his love has said, I want to save the whole human race. That is his love. It's not limited to, there's nobody he doesn't want to save. He wants all, everybody everywhere to be saved. And his divine wisdom says, here's how that's going to work. You see, it has everything to do with how we take things in. If I could somehow, and I would love to, good friends, to browbeat you into being good, uh, the... Um, it wouldn't stick the whole time you'd just be thinking about something you want to do instead of what I was trying to make you do or something. Uh, our will has to be engaged. Our freedom and our will, our own you know, rationality has to be engaged for anything to truly become our own. And the only way we can be saved is if we receive, if the Lord's will becomes our will. If we will to do His will, then we've received that will into ourselves. That still comes from the Lord but we made a choice. We said, yes, I want to will that. And it's possible, therefore, to say, no, I don't want that. And we can change our minds over time. That same chapter, Ezekiel 18, we were just reading, talks all about how you can change your mind. You can be good and then change your mind to be evil. You can be evil and change your mind to be good. Um, but where it ends up is, 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 you know, your, is that your final answer kind of thing. And... Um, and there's, so there's a covenant in here. This is what it's all about. Uh, we can't be saved without the Lord. The Lord can't save us without our cooperation. Why not? He's omnipotent. Well, his omnipotence only works through order. So he can only work according to his order. And his order is that he knows that we'll never be saved unless we freely choose it. So it has to be according to freedom. And that's why he has to do something relatively... I don't really want to say powerless, it sounds blasphemous, but, but to just say, I command you, you know, I command you to choose life, but there's no way to make you it, make it do it. You know, it, it's, it's pretty hands-off, isn't it, in a way? To just say, please, this is the outcome I would like you to choose, but everybody's free. You can choose what you want. Uh, just a little bit on the three hells and the three heavens, then I know I've got to let you go, good people, that... Um, uh, I did a series a while ago, if you want to check that out, on uh, figs and grapes and olives. And they're about three different levels of salvation. So you can look in that some more if you want to see. But basically, there's a way the, the lowest heaven and the highest hell are opposite to each other. And they have to do with just our actions. If you open yourself to the Lord, there are three ways to open yourself to the Lord. You can just say... All right, the Lord said I should do this. I'm going to do this. So you do it. That's a very good thing to do. Uh, it's just obedience. You don't want to think about it. You don't want to get all wrapped up or whatever. It's just enough that you change your behavior. That's enough. You're just kind of going through the motions, but you're doing the right motions. That's sort of a lowest heaven perspective. Then if you decide, well, no, I really want to let this into my mind. I want to kick out all these old thoughts that I've had. I want to have new thoughts. I really want to think what you know, something more along the lines of what the Lord is thinking. 
and all that. That's a more spiritual way. That's a higher heaven to receive the Lord into your mind. And that's intense. It's more intense to do that shift. Some people don't want to go that far. You know, they're just not comfortable. Saying, okay, I'll just stick where I am. You tell me what to do. I'll do it. But this group wants to think about it. And then the last group, it opens at the level of their heart. They say, I want to receive the Lord in my heart, my whole heart. I want to embrace the Lord with love. I don't want to love what I love now. I, I want the Lord to, you know, to get me to will to do his will. You know, I, I want that all the level, at the level of the heart. That's what makes us what Swedenborg calls celestial or heavenly. That's at the highest level. And the hells are just the opposite version of this, that if you get into evil, but only at the level of actions and not really deep into the thoughts or deep into the evil, the worst is that most evil thing. So you remember when Jesus said, theirs is the greater damnation. You know, they're using the trappings of religion in order to abuse people and, and, and for very worldly stupid things. Uh, theirs is the greater damnation. So it depends on how far you open yourself to either heaven or hell, which level. So we have our comfort. We have six things that we can choose. And the burden of, of salvation is in a sense on us, but it's not something we can do ourselves. It does involve a surrender, uh, as we've been talking about. And this is why it's a call to covenant. There's a partnership with God. That's why even the New Testament is referred to as the new covenant, isn't it, sometimes? The Lord says at the Last Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? Uh, the covenant is where the Lord says, well, I'll help you be saved if you respond to me. Uh, the last scripture, sorry, we just got to do one more. <laughs> Revelation chapter 3, because it really sums us up in my mind. Look at verses 19 and 20 there. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I don't barge the door down. I don't come in and fix you unwanted. I didn't fix you thousands of years ago when I died on the cross or something. Uh, that's a misunderstanding. I stand at the door and I knock because my law, my order, is that you have to open the door. This is the only way that it works. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. In a glorious passage, Swedenborg says that really it's an appearance that we open the door. It's even the Lord who opens the door, but we still have to choose it. We yank on it. We can't get it open. The Lord has to open it for us because only the Lord is the door. Only, only he can open the door. And look at what he wants to do. He wants to come in and to dine with us, which is where that willing to do his will, where we sort of eat, like his will, we take in his will, his understanding into ourselves, where the words that we speak, what comes out of our mouth is not our own, but it's from the Lord. You know, that's the dining, that's the communion that the Lord wants to engineer. And that is the most mysterious and wonderful thing of all to contemplate what it's like to be in the Lord and the Lord in us on an everlasting adventure. <laughs> Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you give us a map of the other world, but we don't know where we are and we don't know 
exactly how to get there. We pray for your help, Lord. Open the eyes of our understanding so that we may know which way to go in our repentance. Show us the evils that lurk in our heart. Help us to lay those aside so that we may be more and more like you and so that we, like you, can bless others from that divine love and that divine wisdom. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, for all the usual reasons.